Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, another legal setback for the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. So where do we go from here? Over in Hong Kong, the controversial extradition bill has been withdrawn. But pro-democracy activists say too little, too late. Also, stories about vaping-related illnesses and deaths are leaving out an important piece of the story. Plus, why it feels like Calgary is being overrun with aphids this year. Well, it's feeling like a pretty frustrating day, isn't it? What seems like uh, yet another setback for the Trans Mountain Pipeline project, just when it had seemed that we had got past all of the red tape, all of the legal hurdles... And in fact, we were looking at some of the early stages of construction actually beginning. Uh, What feels like a setback, the Federal Court of Appeal uh, is going to allow six of a proposed 12 legal challenges to go ahead. Now, the court releasing a written decision today uh, saying the allowed challenges are limited to the narrow issue of the adequacy of the consultation with indigenous peoples and related issues. Now, this goes back, obviously, to the issues the first time around with the Federal Court of Appeal, the federal government having to go back and engage in meaningful consultation. So this is kind of a test of the government's assertion that they did that. Now, the court also says this is going to be heard in an expedited fashion. I don't know if we know the precise timetable here, Uh, but yet another legal challenge of this project, yet another delay. With this project. Uh, joining us uh, for some analysis uh, of this decision today, what it all means going forward. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Dwight Newman, professor of law, also Canada Research Chair in Indigenous and Constitutional and International Law at the University of Saskatchewan, also among Senior Fellow in Constitutional Law at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Professor Newman, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome oh, to the program. I'm happy to, happy to join you. Um, should we be surprised by this? Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, what would have been a surprise or what wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, there, there's a, a surprise here in the sense that there's ongoing legal uncertainty about uh, the the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, I was surprised by something when I was reading the judgment. I didn't realize that the federal government hadn't bothered to uh, put an argument on whether these cases should be allowed to go ahead. Um, and it took the Attorney General of Alberta intervening um, to uh, to head off uh, six of them that have been uh, have been blocked. Uh, but there's uh, six cases that are now uh, entitled to go ahead. What do we make of that? I mean, is that is that an oversight? What would explain that? Uh, well, it wouldn't be an oversight. Um, it must have been a decision by the federal government uh, not to uh, not to take a position on the leave to appeal applications. Um, the uh, the judgment suggests that the uh, federal government assumed that they would be granted, in a sense, um, on all twelve or, or eleven of the twelve where they didn't uh, uh, respond, I guess. And uh, the attorney general of Alberta was uh, was obviously. Uh, 
uh, uh, more attuned to which ones would be going forward and not in uh, uh, in arguing in a number of those uh, against them going forward. That's very interesting. Well, it does appear as though that uh, the six that were rejected, or certainly some of those, involved uh, environmental issues. There were environmental groups uh, who felt that the ecological assessment was deficient. Um, it appears as though the appeals that are going forward seem pretty narrowly along the lines of these indigenous consultation issues. Is that your read? That's right. I mean, uh, Justice Stratus has been very precise in what is and isn't going to be litigated in the upcoming case, has defined the question very clearly. And it's very much around whether that the new last phase of consultations um, uh, was uh, sufficient to meet what the Federal Court of Appeal had said last time was missing. Um, the environmental claims and various other claims about uh, um, uh, an alleged bias by the uh, the governing council, various claims. Um, he said there was no arguable case. Um, uh, some of them, he said, we're trying to relitigate issues that had been litigated before, and uh, the point of this decision is to um, stop that from happening, to narrow in on uh, on what it was that there might be an argument on. It, it did appear as though, going back to the initial decision, once the uh, court had said that there was insufficient consultation, that if the federal government was going to go back and do it all again, was it clear on what they needed to do? Or was there still some lingering uncertainty after all of it, whether the, the federal government had done enough in the court's view? Does this suggest then that maybe there wasn't a, a clear threshold or clear criteria that the federal government had to meet? It's tricky to know what to infer. Um, I, I think there probably was room for people to take some different views on what was required um, uh, after the prior decision. And the federal government took one view on that. Um, some of the indigenous communities have come forward and said that uh, they were ignored again and uh, received uh, uh, much less uh, attention on uh, issues yet again from the uh, the new consultation process. Uh, this decision says uh, that the court can't adjudicate that uh, because they weren't given any information uh, by the federal government now on what was or wasn't done uh, in this new phase of consultations. And they say that uh, Alberta made submissions on these, but Alberta wasn't in the room uh, in that process which is true. Um, and so essentially, they're going to need to examine the facts of what happened or didn't happen at this last phase of consultations as now redone. So this is really essentially then a question of whether that consultation was sufficient, that that's pretty much what this comes down to at this point. That's what the court has narrowed mm -hmm. it down to, is uh, whether that consultation was sufficient, some legal issues about how the court engages with that um, in the event that it wasn't some submissions around the remedy that would flow. So when the court says they're going to deal with this in an expedited manner, what, what should we take that to mean? Um, well, it's it's difficult for courts to move quickly, but uh, this uh, decision, so far as possible, is giving some very uh, uh, strict deadlines to try to move things along. And in the, the latter bits of the judgment, uh, is calling basically for the parties to be back uh, in court getting things uh, scheduled um, and for them to be back there within days, essentially, to, to do that and uh, obviously trying to get it scheduled on an expedited basis, um, possibly shortening some of the usual periods um, uh, for evidence to be submitted and so on. So there's, there seems to be a serious effort um, there to move this as quickly as possible, and we'll see uh, if that turns out to be possible. 
Now, it appeared as though we were on the verge of, of having construction begin on certain portions of, of the pipeline, or at least some preliminary work. Does this automatically put all of that on hold? Uh, at this point, I don't think this autom- puts anything automatically on hold. Um, uh, that would require a, a further uh, application, I think. I don't think anything that speaks to whether that work can commence. Of course, um, there are some risks involved if work is commencing before everything is settled in the courts, uh, but I, uh, I expect that, uh, that uh, work could continue. Barring an injunction, is that what would be needed? Barring an injunction, yeah, or or some type of further motion. Uh, But at this point, uh, uh, I I don't think that there's uh, uh, anything specific in this judgment as to that. Uh, The sense of pessimism I'm I'm sensing is is out there today. Uh, I mean, is is it too early to say what what this all means? Do you you feel that that pessimism is unwarranted, or what, what do we read into this? I think it's early to say what this all means, um, uh, but it does mean that there's uh, an ongoing judicial uh, court process around it uh, that could have been uh, ended today and wasn't, um, and uh, we'll have to see what it means. Uh, but it's uh, it's uh, an ongoing, messier process than uh, than I think people were uh, were looking for at this yeah. point. Well, to say the least. Uh, is it possible though that this is kind of the last? legal question around this project we're going to have to deal with? Um, so there's this legal question, and if the uh, court says consultation was adequate, then that would end that at that point. Um, the other legal question outstanding is uh, concerning British Columbia's legislation right. that was designed to, to interfere, and that's still going to the Supreme Court of Canada and will be argued out there. Well, we'll see what happens in the weeks ahead. Uh, Professor Newman, appreciate your insight as always. Thanks for making some time sure, for us here today. Happy to talk with you. All right, all the best. Uh, Professor Dwight uh, Newman, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional International Law at the University of Saskatchewan, Monk Senior Fellow uh, for Constitutional Law at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, so his read of, of what this means today. It is uh, another delay for this project although it'll be interesting to see as he says it doesn't necessarily mean that that all the work being done on the pipeline right now is going to come to a screeching halt uh perhaps these groups will seek some kind of injunction in the meantime the court does want to deal with this in an expedited manner which i guess is encouraging you're looking for the glass half full perspective here and then the other one is as professor newman said is that at least we've narrowed it all down to this and only this So whatever other legal questions opponents of this particular pipeline have, that's been dealt with. We're now limited to this question here of whether the consultation process, the one the federal government went back and did again, was adequate. So all the stuff about the killer whales and and the coastline and all of that, that now seems to be, at least in legal terms, uh, a done issue, a moot point. It's settled at least on that issue. So it kind of comes down to this. We are not satisfying with Hong Kong government just withdraw the bill. The protest will continue until the day we have free election. Okay, so that's the voice of one of the leading uh, democracy activists in Hong Kong, Joshua Wong, reacting to what on the surface appears to be a victory. For protesters, the Hong Kong government has now formally withdrawn this extradition bill. But I think too many, it is too little too late. And so I, perhaps then for the rest of us, maybe then it, it behooves us to get a better understanding of where things are at and why it's too little too late. 
Well, someone who's been watching all of this closely has a piece up uh, from yesterday at McLean's.ca, also a piece up this afternoon at nationalpost.com. Author, journalist, columnist Terry Glavin. Terry, great to talk to you again. Welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. Well, help us understand where things are at, because I, I think people who are sort of casually following this, they hear the news, the bill is withdrawn, that feels, well, okay, that's great, this this is a victory, but it's, it's really not at this point anymore, is it? Not at all. Uh, not at all. In fact, if anything, I think it's quite a public relations stunt, a fairly successful one, that uh, the uh, Beijing's liaison office for the special administrative region of Hong Kong um, has pulled off. Um, I've been following this, as you say, very closely. I've spent the Labor Day weekend on the phone with uh, a number of uh, the the key figures in the protest movement in Hong Kong. And um, some move like this was anticipated. I've been canvassing um, the Hong Kong protest movement uh, uh, this morning in the wake of the announcement, and everybody is saying exactly the same. This is rubbish. This is nonsense. Um, this is too little too late. Um, one thing that I think it should have been obvious to you know some journalists who kind of got really excited about this is that all she's done is she has said that we will withdraw this bill. But weeks and weeks ago, she also said the bill is dead. So, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you know, the, the complete withdrawal of the bill is only one. In fact, it's a minor demand now and has been for some weeks. Uh, uh, one of five demands. These people are committed to democracy. They've had it. They have been pushed around. They've been kicked in the teeth. The degree of police brutality in the last few weeks has been absolutely unconscionable. The uh, the revival of the umbrella movement that was defeated in 2014, and the whole purpose of that movement was universal suffrage, one person, one vote, has been the defining feature of of these this, this late these latest tumults, and they're not going back. And um, I think the thing to, to to keep in mind is that. The whole thing is supposed to unravel in 2047 anyway, right? Your listeners might be aware that this Sino-British agreement, the handover agreement, uh, and the handover in 1997 was to guarantee that for 50 years at least, Hong Kong was to have a really significant degree of autonomy. Um, and China has explicitly uh, stated, during the middle of these protests, by the way, that they regard the Sino-British agreement as just a historical document with no force and effect. The erosion of uh, autonomy in Hong Kong has been dramatic and fast-paced. The liberal democracies of the world, the United Nations, where this Sino-British treaty is registered as a treaty, just standing back and watching this happen. Um, and so those kids, uh, they got nothing to lose. And they go into these protests, and they've got their last will and testament in their backpacks. And they figure they might as well go down fighting, that it's liberty or death. And uh, it is my, um, my considered view that these people are fighting for our values. They're fighting for us. Yeah. And as so many uh, Chinese Democrats and Hong Kong Democrats have told me, in recent weeks, we're fighting for you. 
We're fighting for democracy. And if you want to see what your country will look like in five years, 10 years, maybe 20 years, if you're lucky, look at Hong Kong. There was a tweet today from the group Freedom House that points out that if Hong Kong had a freely elected legislature, could have debated and rejected this bill to begin with. No protest needed, which kind of gets to the heart of the matter here, doesn't it? That this is basically an example of what can happen if these protesters lose, if democracy dies in Hong Kong. Yeah, it is. And it's, uh, you know, there's a lot at stake here. Um there is, you know, without question, I think it's a completely uncontroversial statement to make that uh, the People's Republic of China is uh, the most aggressive and expansionist totalitarian regime on Earth. It's the second largest economy. Uh, all bets are off. All treaties that they have entered into are up for grabs whether it's the militarization of the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, its global, global infrastructure project, or its annex to annexation and militarization of the South China Sea, its internment of perhaps 2 million Uyghur Muslim people in re-education camps, continuing oppression in Tibet, uh, and now its move on Hong Kong, um, these kids in Hong Kong are standing up to them. They're the most significant challenge that uh, the regime in Beijing has faced in God knows how many years. They're certainly the most efficient, the significant challenge that Xi Jinping has faced. And, you know, there were kids who killed themselves after the G20 a few weeks ago, the G20 conference, because everybody was hoping that the G20 would do something to intervene. The G7 conference just came and went in Biarritz, and it's like, I don't know, what's the G7 anymore, Rob? It's like the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation or something. Right. It's just, you know, they, they said nothing, they did nothing about this. Um, and, you know, civil society groups uh, around the world, uh, uh, ordinary Canadians, uh, ordinary Europeans, have developed a tremendous degree of fellow feeling and sympathy for the people of Hong Kong. But our leaders aren't. You know, like in this federal election campaign, you know, I mean, I don't know that I've written so much as a conservative sentence in my entire working life as a journalist. But, you know, there's been more ink about a completely unremarkable thing that 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 Andrew Shear said in the House of Commons 15 years ago. And we're all behaving as though he's like, you know, the Manchurian candidate for Opus Day. Right. Uh, or something. And and meanwhile, you know, we've got almost 2 million Canadians uh, of Chinese heritage. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them are terrified of speaking out publicly. There is an atmosphere of fear and terror in the community across the country, and it's not even an election issue. Yeah, there's a story going on here, and you write about this in your National Post column today, that, that people really need to be paying attention to. We, we had a, a, a pro-Hong Kong group that was essentially kicked out of the Pride Parade in Montreal, not because uh, the parade organizers didn't want them there, but because we, we caved to bullying, essentially, from, from pro-Beijing elements right here in our own country. This should shock the conscience of Canadians, I think. Yeah, and a similar event occurred that weekend at a church in Vancouver, um, where all these pro-Beijing guys who'd been 
you know, the the princeling kids had been roaring around in their Ferraris and Maseratis with Chinese flags and stuff, and they went to harass a pro-Hong Kong demonstration outside the consulate of the People's Republic on Granville Street, and then they heard that there was going to be a prayer meeting at the Tenth Church, wonderful little church, uh, uh, really venerable and uh, you know, beloved little Vancouver institution. They've been around since the thirties. It's mainly mainly Cantonese people, you know, mainly 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 Chinese people. They were having a prayer meeting for Hong Kong. And these thugs, about a hundred of them, showed up outside the church, and they were shouting slogans and waving Chinese flags. And you know, a thought occurred to me: what if, what if these had been like I don't know, right-wing white nationalists, and they were waving Chinese flags or something, or Canadian flags or something? And Ian Young, who is my friend who works for the South China Morning Post, written more about what happened in Montreal than any Canadian journalist. He asked the question, you know, what if it was a bunch of American right-wingers with MAGA hats who showed up at the Montreal Pride Parade, managed to get away with bullying the Pride organizers into barring the Hong Kong LGBT group from participating in the parade? And then during the the solemn two minutes of silence, uh, waving American flags, sang out the Star-Spangled Banner. I mean, my God. Justin Trudeau would be co-authoring a resolution at the United Nations Security Council by now. Yeah, no kidding. But because they're because they were Chinese, everybody sits back and goes, "Oh, you know, it's I don't know some kind of inscrutable dispute uh, among people within this ethnic community." There is something very much like racism, I think, involved in this. Um, but it's not racism of the type that uh, we are maybe most most familiar with discussing. And it's a kind of a, you know, sit back and, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. We're multicultural kind of racism. It's pretending when we see Chinese faces that what we're seeing are people who are defined by their Chinese ethnicity rather than by their values. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing that has bothered me actually for a long time. It's very awkward and difficult to write about this because you don't find a lot of the uh, Hong Kong uh, support group in Canada or the Chinese Democrats in Canada, you know, they don't go around screaming about racism. Right. Um, these people are far more committed to uh, Canadian values, democracy, human rights, the rule of law, to be quite frank with you, than most white people I know. Um, so, you know, we it, it, it's not like we're having an honest conversation about this. And I think all of us do this. The media does it to some extent. Our, all of our political parties do. We tend to see voting blocks. We talk about the Chinese community in Canada. There's no such thing. There's dozens of Chinese communities in Canada. Until recently, they came from the five counties at the mouth of the Pearl River Delta. They were Cantonese-speaking people, you know, since the Immigrant Investor Program. Um, it's mainly, uh, you know, wealth migration. Um, it's a community like all communities that, you know, there are all kinds of people in it and they're no different from us, uh, except that a lot of them are focused on Hong Kong because that's where they come from. And they are very concerned about what I consider to be an epochal frontline struggle in the defining and existential global struggle of our time, which is the struggle between liberal democracy 
and authoritarianism between police states and uh, constitutional uh, 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 democracies. They're on the front lines, and they're fighting this for us. It's our struggle. These are our people. And uh, I think we have to, you know, develop a bit of a fire in our belly about this. I think so. You know, aside from the fact that we're ignoring this this very big issue here at home, what, what have you made of the public statements, in particular by Christia Freeland, that it, it certainly appears as though uh, that they're saying the right thing about what's happening in Hong Kong? Are we doing enough to support the no, protest in Hong Kong? Definitely not. We're not, we're not doing anything. Christia, who I I think we've discussed this, I have a lot of admiration for Christia Freeland, a lot mm. of time for Christia. But what's interesting, and I think people should remember, that, you know, when a couple of years ago when she got this file, uh, the day she got uh, the the post as as foreign affairs minister was the day that John McCallum got his dream job as ambassador to to China. When well, yeah. we know how that went, and it is as though um, part of the arrangement was that Christia just shut up about China. And she never talks about China. It's always Trudeau. If anybody says anything about China, it's usually Trudeau. Um, and, you know, what he says is inco- incoherent at best and milk toast always. All Christian has said about China, there's three statements that have been issued. And in each case, they have been completely anodyne. Uh, you know, uh, completely empty and to be basically vacuous. But it hasn't stopped the Chinese government from, you know, jumping up and down and wetting its trousers and setting its hair on fire about us meddling in Hong Kong affairs. So if we're going to say anything, we might as well say what we claim to believe. Uh, and I think here, Andrew Scheer, whose foreign policy, by the way, is quite similar uh, in many respects to the way Christian Freeland has articulated her understanding of world affairs at the moment. Sheer has been very explicit. We stand with Hong Kong. We stand with the people of Hong Kong. And interestingly, it's, you know, if you want to compare Sheer's statement to anybody, you want to, you find yourself looking to see what Hillary Clinton said and what Nancy Pelosi said and what Elizabeth Warren said. But for some reason, Christian Phelan can't say it. She can't bring herself to articulate a clear statement of solidarity with the people of Hong Kong. And the European Union is much the same way. The Americans are saying what they say, and some of the Americans are talking tough. But the, what we need, to, we need to do more. We need to more than just you know talk about how shocked and appalled we are. We need to make it clear. The liberal democracies of the world have to make it clear to the regime in Beijing that if they mess with Hong Kong, that they're going to bring a world of pain upon themselves, that it's going to hurt, it's going to sting, it's going to leave a mark. And we haven't done that. And so basically, you know, except for some restraints uh, that the American Congress is threatening to place on on the regime of the act in Beijing, in, in Hong Kong, there's been very, very little in the way of caution that uh, Xi Jinping has... Uh, has seen fit to adopt. So this is going to go on, and it's going to get worse, and people are probably going to die. Um, And we're just going to have to sit back and watch it happen, I guess. 
Well, things are at a tipping point. I think you're right, Terry. Your piece yesterday at submitmcclains.ca and the piece just posted this afternoon here at nationalpost.com. Thanks as always, Terry. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Nice talking to you, Rob. All right, we'll talk again. Take care. Terry Glavin, author, journalist, and columnist. His thoughts on the situation in Hong Kong, why the stakes are so high, and why it should matter so much to all of us. In the grand scheme of things, these cigarettes are still relatively new in that we are still learning more about the effectiveness uh, of e-cigarettes and helping smokers to kick the habit, still understanding the long-term health impacts of e-cigarettes. Um, and, and certainly we're, we're trying to find that balance uh, between ensuring then that adult smokers have access to e-cigarettes, but also trying to keep them out of the hands of kids. Right? If somebody's not already a smoker, we don't want them to become an e-cigarette user. Uh, but there's an element to this story that's come to light as of, um, well, certainly in the last few weeks, and what seems like a mysterious cluster of illnesses in the U.S. linked to vaping. And in fact, now there has been a second death linked to this. Investigators of the Oregon Health Authority Public Health Division said Tuesday they received reports that the person who died in July had recently used a vaping device containing cannabis bought from an Oregon store. Uh, And so the cannabis element, I think, is very important to this story because this has kind of taken on a life of its own, that all of a sudden this is about e-cigarettes and people becoming very ill or dying as a result of e-cigarettes. But almost all of these cases appear to involve black market cannabis oil. So what do we make of all of this? Joining us for some thoughts is someone who's been now watching all of this very closely. Dr. Michael Siegel joins us, professor in the Department of Community Health Sciences at Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Siegel, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Uh, so how much of this story should shape our view, our opinion, or tell us anything about the health risk of e-cigarettes? Possibly nothing. Um, most of the cases that have been reported have actually been not associated with the use of with electronic cigarettes, but with the use of um, marijuana, the use of uh, basically vaping cannabis. Um, it is... It not, we don't know exactly whether or not, um, you know, there are any cases associated with e-cigarettes. But what we do know is that is that most of the cases have been associated with with cannabis, and you know, it's possible that this has nothing whatsoever to do with electronic cigarettes, and that all of the you know the talk is really pretty much moot. Um, you know, we'll know for sure once the lab testing is done, we, we find out what the exact chemicals are in there that, that is causing this. Um, but I think that it's, it's uh, the most likely explanation based on what we know is that this is some sort of contamination or, or toxicity that's resulting from uh, vaping black market cannabis products. Right. So just because of the manner in which this is being consumed, the fact that this, this oil is being vaped, does not necessarily tell us, as you said, potentially even anything about e-cigarettes. Exactly. I mean, you know, vapors have known for years that it's dangerous to, to vape an oil-based uh, product. And all electronic cigarettes that I'm aware of um, basically use propylene glycol or glycerin as their excipient. So, so pretty much all e-liquids that I'm familiar with or, or aware of are, are basically alcohol-based. Um, so the use of any oil-based uh, e-liquid uh, is, is definitely a risk. 
Um, the lung just does not like to be covered in oil. Um, as you can imagine, it's a lot harder to clear uh, the oil from the lung and that the oil can literally build up and cause inflammation and essentially a pneumonia. Um, so, so in the first place, the oil, you know, is, is just not is dangerous for the lung. Um, but in the second place, when the THC is extracted uh, from the cannabis, um, there are solvents used and those solvents may be toxic. Uh, for example, butane is often used. Um, you know, if you buy a uh, product from a, uh, licensed dispensary, they, they have maximum levels of, of butane that are allowed to be retained in the product, and there's testing of the product. But if you're buying off the street, and there's no testing, and you have no idea. Um, and there may be other solvents that are used that are toxic. Um, so I think that there's a lot of reasons to be suspicious of these black market uh, THC oils. Right. And again, you know, it's, it's important to know that we, we don't know for certain what's caused this. And there's obviously a, a need to get to the bottom of it. Uh, health officials, I think, should be cautious in what they're saying. But at the same time, it feels as though uh, that this very quickly became about e-cigarettes. And there's some pretty sweeping statements being made by health officials about e-cigarettes. How, how did we get to that point? Well, I think that the first of all, I, I I think that a lot of the statements that have been made by health agencies, both the CDC and and state health departments, um, have been have been incomplete and, in my view, irresponsible, because um, the the warnings that they're giving are so vague, um, basically saying don't vape at all. Um, and you know, first of all, I think that's that's meaningless advice. Nobody's going to listen to that. Nobody's going to take that seriously because it's just too broad a statement. It doesn't really give guidance to anyone. Um, it's like saying, you know, if there was a, a contaminated uh, E. coli outbreak that was affecting romaine lettuce, it's like saying, you know, don't eat. I mean, that's just far too broad. Or even don't eat lettuce uh, is probably too broad. So in this situation, I think that these agencies are being, uh, you know, far too vague in their in their instructions. Nobody's going to listen to that. And and the reality is that um, we have an opportunity to prevent further cases from happening. Um, but to do that, the health authorities need to be as specific as possible. And if they were to simply tell the truth and say, look, what we know right now is that black market THC oils are dangerous, that that at least some of these cases are caused by that. So please do not use those products. I think people would take that seriously. Um, but it's hard to take seriously a, a recommendation that says if you are concerned about the possibility of, you know, acute respiratory failure, then please don't use any vaping product. Nobody's going to listen to that. Mm, yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, there was a statement from, from the U.S. Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services um, that said in part, Americans who use these cigarettes and are concerned about these specific potential risk of illness should consider refraining from their use and should not buy them off the street or modify them or add substances in ways not intended by the manufacturer. I mean, the second half of that statement, I, I think, seems fair. Uh, the first, it seems like an overreach at this point. I, I agree. I think that, you know, the, the advice about avoiding, you know, uh, black market products, perfect, perfect sense. But, um, but the idea about, you know, if you're concerned about this, you know, don't vape, um, you know, again, is far too broad and uh, it's not going to accomplish anything. I mean, the reality is that uh, people are addicted to nicotine. Uh, smokers or even ex-smokers who are now relying on vaping products. And if they were to actually heed this advice, 
it would be, in my opinion, a public health disaster because if they were to heed this advice and they stopped vaping, um, a lot of these vapors would return to smoking. There's no question mm-hmm. that, I mean, if they, could, if they could stop vaping that easily, then they wouldn't be vaping, you know? Uh, they would just quit cold turkey and, and that would be the end of it. So um, you can't just stop vaping. It's just not that easy. And I think the... The CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services are being completely unrealistic in in even suggesting that that is the correct message to be sending. Well, is this maybe a means to an end in some ways or almost the case of the ends justify the means that if we're going to try to stamp out e-cigarette use and there appear to be some groups who um, I, I think have that intent that if if the public believes that they're dangerous, then, then maybe that's that's not a bad thing from their perspective. Well, I do think you're right in the sense that I think these groups do view the means as, as justifying or the ends as justifying the means. I think that they look at this as an opportunity. You know, wow, look at what we've been saying all this time about how dangerous e-cigarettes are, and now these people are, are dying from it. Um, you know, it's a almost a dream come true for them, and they're taking advantage of the opportunity. But the problem is that in public health, we have an ethical responsibility to tell people the truth and to be transparent, and we don't lie to people or mislead them, even if the end result of that would be, you know, that potentially they would, they would heed our, you know, they would do behaviors that are, that are healthier. We don't, we don't do that in public health. Um, and so that's why it's problematic. Um, even if this results in a lot of youth, you know, deciding, okay, I'm not going to vape, um, you know, that's, that's a good result, but it doesn't justify uh, sending misleading advice. Um, and I think the reality is that, you know, youth are not dying from using electronic cigarettes. They're not dying from vaping. The only youth who are getting really sick are youth who are, who are, are basically buying uh, cannabis from drug dealers, mm-hmm. is really what it amounts to, and they have no idea what's in the product. Uh, and they're coming down with severe respiratory illness. So, you know, that's those are the, the youth who are really at risk. And if we just tell them don't vape, um, we're not going to prevent uh, more of these cases from, from occurring. Right. I, I think even as parents, you know, we, we sort of it's it's easier to grab onto that shortcut to have a conversation about kids about e-cigarettes and vaping uh, to just be able to say, you don't want to die. You don't want to get this uh, horrible uh, respiratory illness, so you better not use this stuff. Maybe that's uh, it's it's kind of a shortcut for parents to 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 make those claims. But um, you know, if kids see through that, if if kids feel as though maybe we're not being being honest, that that might uh, lose its impact. I think that's very true, and I think kids are smart. And when they hear you, uh, you know, coming out with this, you know, basically saying, "Oh, just vaping is terrible. It's all." it's all dangerous, it's all bad for you, and then, you know, they've seen for the past couple of years their friends vaping and nothing's happened, um, you know, they just don't buy it, and that's, they're not going to listen to these broad messages. But if you're very specific with them, um, and you say, look, right, so far as we know, electronic cigarettes are not causing any acute disease, but if you go to the black market and start buying products like, like THC oil, yeah, those are really seriously uh, hazardous. I think then you will have an effect. I think I think kids will appreciate that honesty and the nuance. They can appreciate nuance, um, and I think it will have more of a of an effect on on actually preventing the illnesses that we're seeing. 
The other part of that, that message, the statement from the Department of Health and Human Services, that youth, young adults, pregnant women should never be using e-cigarettes. Americans who do not want to use or who do not use tobacco products should not start using e-cigarettes. Uh, and, and again, and I think that's a reasonable message to say that people who don't use cigarettes should probably not use e-cigarettes. But that, how, does, how does that fit in with a, a public health message and trying to take a harm reduction approach when it comes to smoking? Well, I don't think anyone really advocates for the idea that that anyone who doesn't use already use tobacco products um, should start vaping. There's no company out there um, that I've ever seen or heard of that is trying to get people or wants to get people who don't use any kind of tobacco product to to start vaping. Um, so that's kind of a almost a, a you know a given that that. You know that they say that is not really any any news to anyone. Um, nobody would argue otherwise. But I think that what is is most problematic is the fact that groups, in my opinion, uh, groups that have been, been attacking e-cigarettes for years have, I believe, this preconceived uh, bias against the product, and they're just taking advantage of any opportunity to demonize vaping. Um, and I think that that's irresponsible. And the reason why I think it's irresponsible is twofold. One, it's not true. I mean, they're lying to people or misleading them. And number two, because I think it's going to have a negative impact. I think there are a lot of vapors out there who are going to get scared, and they're going to actually listen to the advice, and they're going to say, look, I might as well just go back to my cigarettes. As long as, you know, if I'm at risk of developing respiratory failure, uh, uh, you know, immediately from vaping, why not just go back to my Marlboros and let them, you know, let them kill me slowly? Um, it, it, it's going to cause a lot of harm in the long run. I'd say so. Uh, well, more from you. People can find your blog. Uh, you've been writing about this, tobaccoanalysis.blogspot.com. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate your insight on this. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again. That's uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, a professor of the Department of Community Health Sciences, Boston University School of Public Health, has 32 years of experience in the field of tobacco control. I also spent two years working at the Office on Smoking and Health at CDC, published nearly 70 papers related to tobacco. So very much of the opinion that tobacco use is deadly and that smokers switching to e-cigarettes represents a public health benefit. Of course, we need to understand the associated risks with e-cigarette use. But what do these illnesses, this cluster of illnesses and these two deaths tell us about e-cigarettes? Potentially not very much. The vast majority of these cases are linked to black market cannabis oil. This is not a story about e-cigarettes. Now, to understand what happened here still, was it certain chemicals involved? What, What caused this? There is still a need to know that. And if we can isolate a certain chemical, then whatever the product is, when it comes to e-cigarettes, you need to make sure that nothing of the sort is contained in anything that's available legally. But as he points out on his website, in California, 21 of the 21 cases were linked to vaping THC oil. In New Mexico, 8 out of the 8. In Wisconsin, 24 of the 27. So that represents about 95% of these cases linked to black market uh, cannabis oil, THC oil. There are potentially some cases that are linked to e-cigarettes, a few. But again, there's, there's a lot we don't know at this point. And it's always kind of a sign that, that summer's nearing its end, that summer's just about over. When you start to notice the aphids, 
But this year, they're hard to miss, frankly. There's a lot of aphids this year, and it feels like it's worse than it's been, at least in recent years. It feels like a pretty bad year for aphids. And just, you know, to be out just as the sun's just, you know, starting to creep down and it's almost just kind of creepy when it, the sun comes in at a certain angle and you see these clouds of them. Like, there's no avoiding them. And just, you know, to try to, I was up for a run just the other day and it's just, you know, they're covering your clothes, they're flying in your eyes and your mouth. It's, it's rather unpleasant. Now, I mean, the good news is they're, they're not uh, stinging, you know, they're not like mosquitoes in, in that sense. They're, they're just annoying. Let's put it that way. So what, what's made it a bad year for aphids? Is there anything to be concerned about? Do we need a anti-aphid kind of strategy here? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program Ken Fry. Dr. Ken Fry is the coordinator of environmental and production horticulture at Olds College. Ken, thanks so much for making some time for us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So, yeah, I mean, is it um, a bad year for aphids? Are the numbers unusually high this year? Not particularly so. I mean, it might be a little bit up over last year. Um, it's been a particularly wet year this year, so that leads to a lot of good plant growth. Aphids feed on plants. If they've got lots of food, they reproduce, and their numbers climb. So certain conditions then contribute, obviously, to, to aphid populations. Yeah, they are a soft-bodied insect. Like we always think of insects as being hard and crunchy with that exoskeleton. They do have an exoskeleton, but it's particularly thin because they suck on plant juices, so their body has to expand as they take in that fluid uh, diet. So they're, they're quite soft-bodied, and so they're very prone to drying out. So the, the more humid it is, the more moisture that's around, the better off they do. Uh, so it seems like we're seeing a lot of them this year. Now, it, 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 there's the perception then that, you know, they're worse when, you know, you're getting closer to dusk in those later hours. Do they, do they change their behavior at certain times of the day? How, how do we explain that? Well, I think the aphids this fall, what people are seeing now, like you uh, very, very poetically described <laughs> was these clouds of aphids in the yeah. air at sunset. Um, yeah, it conjures up sort of horror show uh, images <laughs> right. in some people's minds. I, I kind of enjoy it, but that's just me. I'm a bug guy. Um, what we're seeing here is aphids normally are wingless throughout the summer. They just content to sit on plants, feed away. Um, if they need wings uh, because their plant's dying back and the mom goes, oh, my kids are going to starve, so my next generation, they'll have wings, then they'll fly off to find new, new plants. But towards fall, they know that winter's coming, so what they do is they tend to go to what we call an overwintering host. So why we don't think that there's aphids around throughout the summer unless you're really looking at your plants because they're not really flying around. Yeah. But in fall, they're going out to mate, so this is the first time that males are ever around in the population. Uh, the females mate, and then they fly off to an overwintering host, usually a tree, where they lay an overwintering egg. So this is the time of year, if you're going to see flying aphids, this is when you see them. It's like we see flying ants in the spring. That's when the queens and the, and the drones come out to mate, and then the queens go found new colonies. In aphids, they fly in the fall to mate and lay eggs for the winter. Now, we do get early frosts, you know, in, in Calgary, the weather can be unpredictable. So what happens to them if we do get hit with some, some early September cold temperature? 
Yeah, that's uh, unfortunate for them because these wing, this wing generation is, is not really adapted to be feeding on plants. That's not their goal. Their goal is to mate and then uh, the females to lay eggs. So they're, they're not long-lived anyway, you know, one to two weeks. Um, if we do get a, what we call a killing frost, minus 7 degrees Celsius, that will do them in entirely. But even cooler nights, you know, around the zero mark, that'll knock off a few. Uh, but they're not... They, this generation is not meant to last a long time. It's it's live fast, die young. You know, <laughs> love is in the air. This is a mating frenzy, and then they die. Yeah, well, that's some some people live that way too. I guess. <laughs> um, so, in terms then of whether we should be anything beyond annoyed by aphids, they don't really pose any kind of of risk to us, threat to us. Uh, I no, know to, certainly to, for people who grow plants, they they can be a real pest. Absolutely. For humans and uh, other animals, they are not blood feeders. They don't transmit disease to, to us or our pets or anything like that. Um, but they do cause significant damage to crops um, by transmitting viruses and other diseases. They can you know, harm our house plants and our garden plants uh, by feeding on them. Uh, but strictly speaking, there's a whole host of natural enemies out there, uh, the most common of which is the lady beetle. And it, it, it hoovers up aphids like crazy. Like uh, A single la- uh, lady beetle can consume up to 5,000 individual aphids in its lifetime. So there's all kinds of beneficial insects, hoverflies and lacewings and all kinds of stuff. So strictly speaking, they're a part of the environment. They, they're good at what they do, which is colonize plants, feed on them, reproduce like crazy. Uh, they're short-lived. Um, really what their ecological role is, is to actually try and kill plants that will then die and become soil. So they're like early colonizers of disturbed sites, like after, oh, oh goodness, a fire or a landslide or something like that. So they have an important ecological role, but in a steady state situation like a city park or garden, they're there, but there's beneficial insects there as well. So strictly speaking, a nuisance, certainly uh, potential risk for crops, but, but no, no real threat to humans. Yeah. So if I'm inhaling them or swallowing yeah. them when I'm out for a run, you know, that's maybe a little protein, I guess. Yeah, a little protein shake yeah, on the run. Exactly. Yeah. Now, typically, I mean, dragonflies, th- those, that's another one that feeds on aphids, right? Well, yes and no. Um, damselflies, their, their smaller cousin, is probably more likely because it's a smaller animal. Dragonflies are a big animal. That, you know, they, they got a healthy appetite. They, they need a, a bigger meal. So they'd have to, you know, fly and capture many tens of aphids yeah. to eat. You know, it'd be equivalent of a moth or, or, or a fly. So it's very energy intensive for them to catch such a small sample like that. Yeah, because maybe I expect to see them or I expect to see some of these other bugs that are going to be out in a, it would be a feeding frenzy for them. I don't know. Oh. I don't feel like I've seen them. Oh, spiders, the spider webs, they catch the aphids uh, in hordes, absolutely. Well, it would be good for them. All right, so not an unusually bad year. Maybe the number's up a little bit, as you say, because of just how how wet it's been, but cold frost uh, might do them in. A tip is stay away from wearing colors that make you look like a flower. (laughs) The light yellows, the greens, things like that uh, look more like a cow. So, you know, the darker, rougher textures and colors, then they won't be interested in you. There you go. Good advice. Ken, thanks for making some time for us here. Appreciate this. Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Uh, Dr. Ken Fry uh, with the Environmental and uh, Production Horticulture Department at Olds College. Good advice for all kinds of reasons, right? Don't dress like a flower. Dress like a cow. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.